we have been discussing the Dhamma Dayada Sutra, the discourse on the heirs and Dhamma. And in this sutta, the, the sutta opens when the Buddha requests his disciples to be heirs in Dhamma, not heirs in material things. And then the Buddha gives some illustration of how he takes the case of two monks who come to him hungry and tired after he himself has eaten the full meal and he has leftover food. And to both of the monks he offers the food, the leftover food, and says, if you are hungry, please eat. And one monk refuses the food. He reflects that food, this alms food that's left over, this is a material thing, something amisa, something carnal. And Buddha has instructed us to be heirs in Dhamma, not heirs in material things. And so the monk refuses, rejects the food, and even endures the hunger, the tiredness for the full day and night, full day and night in order to fulfill the Buddha's instructions to be an heir in Dhamma, not an heir in material things. On the other hand, the other monk takes the food, eats the food, and so he's able to pass the day and night strong and vigorous and he continues to practice the Dhamma. So the Buddha says that he doesn't criticize the second monk because he is a decent monk, but he accepts the food and eats it. And for this reason the Buddha says that the first monk is one... He says this first monk is more to be respected and commended by me. Not that he criticizes the second monk, but he praises more highly the first monk. The reason is, he says, that this practice of his in rejecting the food will for long conduce to his fewness of wishes, contentment, effacement, easy support, and arousal of energy. And here I think, as we explained last time, we have to understand the purpose, this comparison of the two, is not because the Buddha wants to commend self-mortification as a practice, or voluntary abstinence from food. Part of the Buddha's middle way is to provide for one's physical needs, but at the same time without being attached to them. But I think the Buddha sets up this comparison between the two in order to show the kind of ideal attitude that one should adopt, which is to bear difficult situations with patience, with equanimity, and with perseverance not always yielding to the easier course, but being ready to strike out and to take up difficult practice in order to help 
subdue the mind, to train the mind. And the Buddha mentions here five basic qualities, the kind of ideal qualities of the, of the life of renunciation. There is fewness of wishes, apichata, and contentment, santuki, santosa. These are two aspects which are connected with sila or virtue. Not virtue so much in the moral sense, the ethical sense, but more in the aesthetic sense of removing faults of character, the kind of multitude of desires and discontent with one's outer conditions. Then the third quality, Saleka, is the effacement, or which means the removal, the eradication of defilements, especially desire, in this case, desire for a full meal, maybe <laughs> attachment to delicious tastes. Then there is being subharata, which means being easy to support, easy to maintain. Since the monks live with the support of the laity, the devotees, therefore they should be content with whatever they receive, and this makes them easy to support. They don't have to make excessive demands on their dieting or lay support. Then the fifth quality is the arousing of energy, particularly the energy in, for meditation, in the training of the mind. And so qualities three and five, these are concerned with the development of samadhi or concentration and panya, wisdom, while subharata, ease, being easy to support, is connected with sila or virtue. Now in order to encourage the development of these qualities, the Buddha has allowed his disciples to follow certain types of aesthetic practices. As we know, the Buddha rejected the extreme of self-mortification, extreme asceticism, but he allowed the monks, those who were so inclined, to observe certain ascetic practices as a way of strengthening these five qualities. In the Visuddhimagga, the Visuddhimagga has a full chapter on the ascetic practices, and in that chapter it said that these ascetic practices have the special purpose of encouraging the development of these five qualities. The commentaries mention 13 ascetic practices. Of these, several are concerned with the robes, several with alms food, several with the dwelling place. Concerning the robe, the main practice is to use Pansukula Chitra, which means a robe which is made by collecting pieces of discarded cloth, then cutting them into patches, then sewing the patches together and dyeing them all the same color. 
be saffron or ochre color. Usually monks nowadays accept robes which are offered by dhanas, ready prepared robes, already cut, sewn and dyed. And if nowadays the use of the Pantukula it's almost fallen into oblivion. But in the Buddha's day, though householders would offer robes to the Sangha, there were still many monks, or at least some monks, who preferred the old practice of just collecting cast-off pieces of cloth. Particularly, they would go to the charnel ground, the cremation ground, because when the legal authorities would... <laughs> they would in the charnel ground, they would throw away corpses of people who had been killed, especially by the king, punished by the king with death. And so they would wrap the body up in a piece of white cloth and then just throw it to the charnel ground for the animals to devour, the jackals, the hyenas, vultures. And so <laughs> those monks who wanted to practice using the Pamsukula um, Chivara would go to these charnel grounds, pull off the cloth from the corpse, then cut it up into pieces, patches, and sew it, sew it together, then dye it. So this is the Pamsukula Chivara practice. I think in Thailand there are still monks who observe this practice in the Northeast ascetic tradition, but in Sri Lanka I don't think it's observed. Okay, regarding alms food, the main ascetic practice, and when one undertakes the ascetic practice, then one is supposed to make a determination or vow that one undertakes this practice, for example, using only the robe made from discarded pieces of cloth and one rejects the use of already prepared robes. So then if one makes this vow of determination, then if somebody offers the prepared robe, then one deliberately rejects it in order to observe, to protect and preserve one's vow. Another vow in relation to the robes is to use only three chivaras, only three robes. That is, the Buddha has allowed the andina, the antaravasaka, the underrobe. Then the, it's called the uttarana, the upper robe. And then there is something called the sangati, that's the double thick robe which is used as a kind of cloak. Generally, most monks will use an extra robe, sometimes an extra under robe, an extra upper robe, and so when one robe is being washed, then they will use their extra robe. But when the monk makes a, wants to undertake the practice of using only the three robes, then he makes this vow of determination to reject the use 
of extra robes. He will have a bathing cloth so that when he washes the under robe, then he will use the bathing cloth temporarily. And if he's washing the upper robe, then he will cover himself with his double thick robe, the cloak or sangati. But he will not use other robes which he will keep in storage and then change the robes from time to time. But make use only of these three robes and only when one of the robes is really worn to bits, no longer be used, then he will make use, then he will accept another robe and reject the robe currently in use. Maybe he will then use it for a bed sheet or um, a sitting cloth or some other purpose. The, in the ancient Sangha, the monk who was the foremost observer of the ascetic practices was the Venerable Mahakasaka. Even the Buddha offered him and told him in his old age that he should give up his ascetic practices and accept robes from ready-prepared robes and use extra robes if he wanted. But Mahakasapa rejected this and said, No, Venerable Sir, I will continue to observe these ascetic practices right up to the end of my life. Okay, then regarding food, the main Dutanga or ascetic practice is to go exclusively on Pindapata, on Amtram, not to accept any ready prepared meals, meals which are brought to the Ashtarama, to the monastery, or to accept invitations to houses for prepared dhanas, but the monk goes only on Pindapata, and generally they will take only one meal a day, very strictly. Usually they'll go Pindapata early in the morning, that they have the meal early, and then they won't take any more food through the rest of the day. Then the special mode of going Pindapata is to do what's called Sapadana Charika. Sapadana Chara, which means that one goes to every house without making any exceptions. I think that was a general practice, even amongst monks who went Pindapata, that they would know certain houses. This was particularly in India, since not everybody at that time was sympathetic to Buddhism. It's not like going, say, Pindapata in a village outside Kandy, where almost everybody is a traditional Buddhist for many generations. But in the Buddha's time, many, probably the majority of people, would not be followers of Buddhism. But they will be Brahmins, followers of Jainism, other religious schools. But one makes the determination to go to every house without exception. Even if one goes to every house in succession, not skipping over certain houses because people have repeatedly refused to give them. So even if one knows that this house, every day over the last year that I've gone there, people have refused, 
still one makes at least a token stop there. <laughs> and sometimes it's even happened as a famous story that one monk had gone for alms round to a house I think every day for years <laughs> and the people never came out never showed him any respect then one day the house owner came out and said to him would you pass on venerable sir we don't give alms here <laughs> then the monk said thank you householder and went to the next house but then the householder when he heard this he thought these bhikkhus must be very extraordinary since here I just told him to pass on and he thanked me for telling him that <laughs> and so then somehow some seed of sada faith took root in his heart and the next time the monk came he prepared alms and then he eventually became a follower of Buddhism Okay, so reach to go to accept only food offered on Amsram and to practice going to every house without skipping over certain houses. Sapadana Chaudha. Then regarding dwelling places, there are many regulations for many ascetic practices. One is to make the determination to live only in a forest, not to spend even a single night in a dwelling in a town or a city. Then some monks would make the Atitana the determination to reject any kind of overhead shelter, any kind of fixed abode, but to dwell only at the foot of a tree. So that their dwelling place is the tree itself, or their shelter is the tree itself. They won't even live in a kudi, except during the rainy season, when there is a rule during the rainy period, one has to live in a shelter. Then another ascetic practice is to dwell only, or to dwell, or at least for a certain fixed period, in a cemetery or cremation ground. This is a way of coming rips with fear because people often they believe in ghosts and they think that the spirits of the dead are moving about in the cremation ground, in the cemetery. And so if one really wants to fight against this deep-rooted fear, then one will make a determination to live there for a certain period, not leaving it no matter how frightened one becomes. Then the last of the ascetic practices which is mentioned in the standard list is called the sitter's practice, the Satika Dutanga, which is one makes the determination not to lie down to sleep, but rather one makes the vow to sleep in the sitting posture, in the meditation posture. In the weaker form of this vow, one leans back against some support. In the stronger form, which I guess can be practiced only by really advanced meditators, one doesn't even have a back support, but one sleeps 
in without any support, just supported by one's bottom. This is a very difficult practice, but those who are very advanced, accomplished meditation masters are known to undertake this due time. Okay, so these are some of the ascetic practices which have been recommended by the Buddha and observed by the Sangha because they promote the development of these five qualities. Okay, that's a little detour from the um, sequence of the Sutta. Now we can return to the Sutta itself. Okay, now after the Buddha has given the monks the stirring admonition on being heirs of Dhamma, then he gets up from his seat and leaves, goes back into his dwelling. Then after he leaves, Venerable Sariputta gets up in front of the Sangha and addresses the monk because he's going to now elaborate on the main theme of the Buddha's discourse. And now he picks up the, you say, the seed idea which has been dropped by the Buddha by taking the distinction of how the disciples properly train themselves and how they do not train themselves. And he makes the sort of theme of this exposition the idea of dwelling in seclusion. This is Viveka. So he begins, this is paragraph 5. He says, In what way do disciples of the teacher who lives secluded not train in seclusion and in what way do disciples of the teacher who lives secluded train in seclusion? So here we have the teacher is the Buddha himself who dwells in seclusion. Even though he's often surrounded by large companies of people and has to spend many, many hours every day teaching the Dhamma, but still the Buddha goes off for certain periods of every day into seclusion in order to draw the mind into his samadhi, into concentration. He doesn't have any further attainments to develop, but still for the purpose of setting an example for the world at large and also for his own peaceful abiding Every day the Buddha would go off certain fixed periods in order to dwell in meditation. And then every once in a while the Buddha would go for extended retreat, sometimes for two weeks, a month, even on a few occasions for three months. Again, this is not because he has to realize some attainment which he has not yet achieved, but in order to set an example for the others to follow. And now the Buddha, the Venerable Sariputta points out that some of the disciples of this 
secluded teacher follow his example and dwell in seclusion while some don't dwell in seclusion. And the connection with the Buddha's own statement, preceding statement, is that those disciples who don't dwell in seclusion, who don't go into seclusion, those are the ones who are intent on becoming heirs of material things, amisa dayanis, not heirs of Dhamma. While those disciples who go into seclusion, those are the ones who are intent on becoming heirs to Dhamma, not heirs to material Okay, so when Venerable Sariputta brings up the distinction of these two types of disciples, then the monks ask him to explain at length. Okay, and Sariputta begins with the negative side. In what way do disciples of the teacher who lives secluded not train in seclusion? And here he mentions three things. Here, disciples of the teacher who lives secluded <laughs> a little re- re- redundant. Here, disciples of the teacher who lives secluded do not train in seclusion. They do not abandon what the teacher tells them to abandon and they are luxurious and careless leaders in backsliding, neglectful of seclusion. Okay, now the commentary tries to give some kind of structural basis for this threefold reason that that Venable Sariputta proposes. Here the commentary draws on an old distinction of three aspects of seclusion. I think this distinction comes even earlier than the commentaries of Buddhaghosa in the Nidesa. This is a work, a very early commentarial work that comes in the Pali Canon. Okay, Kaya Viveka, that means bodily seclusion. This is going off to a secluded place, a remote dwelling place, isolating oneself from company, from society, and devoting one's time in solitude towards meditation, the development of the mind. Then Chitta Viveka, this is mental seclusion. This is secluding the mind, or we say freeing the mind from the chatter of distracting thoughts, from the huge population of people that are within the mind. All of the, say, the memories, mental impressions of one's social, contacts, and particularly 
from the five hindrances, the panchinivarana. And it's said that the citta viveka, mental seclusion, this is fulfilled by the attainment of the jhanas, the meditative absorption, samadhi. Then the third kind of seclusion, upati viveka, this is seclusion from, we say, all of the conditions of samsaric existence. This is equivalent to Nibbana, or maybe Arahanship. Okay, so the commentary tries to take this threefold scheme and apply it to these three aspects of seclusion mentioned by Venerable Sariputta. Okay, in paragraph 6, the disciples do not train in seclusion. That means that they do not go off into physical solitude. But they're always mixing in company, always associating with their friends, visiting the houses of their lay supporters, chit-chatting, talking. Nowadays, they might be listening to the radio, watching television. <laughs> Okay, then the commentary connects. They do not abandon what the teacher tells them to abandon. It connects that with citta viveka, with mental seclusion. Because what the teacher tells them to abandon are the defilements, the kilesas, the upakilesas, the minor defilements. But they don't make any effort to purify the mind and so they don't um, develop this mental seclusion. Then the third aspect that Mosariputta gives, they are luxurious and careless leaders and backbiting, neglectful of seclusion. This the commentary says that they fail to achieve upati viveka, the seclusion from all the conditions of samsara. I have to say that third one, it doesn't seem completely um, convincing to me. The attempt to bring the, this third aspect mentioned by Sariputta together with the third type of Viveka, it's a little stilted. Doesn't that seem so? Okay, then Sariputta elaborates this by saying that the monks in the three age groups within the Sangha are to be blamed for these three reasons. That is, we have three types of monks classified according to years of ordination. The elder monks, these are the terrors in the proper sense. These are ones who have been in the order for ten rain retreats or more. Then there is the middle, middling bhikkhus, or the majjhima bhikkhus. These have been in the order from five to nine rain retreats. And then there are the junior monks. These have been in the order for five 
for less, fewer than five bucks. And so the monks in each of these groups are to be blamed for each of these three reasons. That they do not train in seclusion, they do not abandon what the teacher tells them to abandon, and they are luxurious and careless, and so on. So it is in this way that the disciples of the teacher who lives secluded do not train in seclusion. Okay, so these are the monks who are amisadayata, who are intent on becoming heirs of material things. They use the four requisites, robes, alms, food, lodging, medicine and refreshments. Even nowadays there are many more material things that they could use, but they don't go off into seclusion to to start training the mind. They don't succeed to any degree in purifying the mind of defilements, in removing defilements, and they live carelessly and backslide, which means that they live almost like worldly people, like lay people, even though they present the appearance of being monks. Anything to elaborate on? No, I, I mean, there is no, not mentioned the different techniques which are in connection with these uh, trainings. They are very important, the different kinds of techniques to approach this mm. solitude. Uh, especially Chitta Viveka, there is, that is very, very tricky. Because you may have a lot of people in the, the world which, in which we live, which lives in us. <coughs> and, uh, to escape that in a technical good strategy, here also the Maitri Bhavana, which deals with many people, can be used for attaining a certain chitta viveka. Huh? Because there you find in the first uh, meditation of Maitri you find an enormous vitaka, a real mountain vitaka. And when you break through, you are really dwelling with so many people, but not anymore with these influences of, uh, which have any connection with the uh, Okay, so now Venerable Sariputta, he takes care of first the negative side, the monks who are the heirs of material things. And now, paragraph 7, he describes the monks who are the heirs of Dhamma, who are striving to become heirs of Dhamma. These are the monks who train in seclusion in three ways. That is, they first, they train in seclusion, that is, they go off into physical seclusion. At least several times a day they withdraw from their companions and go off to devote the monk to meditation. And with sufficient effort, then they abandon what the teacher tells them to abandon. That is, they 
are working, training themselves to eliminate the chelases, the defilement. And then they are not luxurious and careless. They are keen to avoid backsliding and they are leaders in seclusion. In other words, they live in accordance with those five qualities, those five excellent qualities of being having few desires, being content, being easy to support, devoting themselves to basement, eradication of defilements, and arousing of energy. Okay, in each of the three groups of monks, the elders, middle-aged monks, and young monks, are described in the same way. Okay, now we come to paragraph 8. And if one just looks at it, it seems that the sutta has taken a different, turned off in a different direction. But the point here is that the now Venerable Sariputta is explaining what are the qualities that the teacher tells them to, tells the monks to abandon. What are the states that have to be abandoned in meditation? And then, not only this, but Sariputta also shows the method or means for overcoming these defilements. In other words, what is to be practiced by those disciples who want to become heirs of Dhamma, not heirs of material things. And what is to be practiced is just the Noble Eightfold Path. So here, Venerable Sariputta develops this exposition by taking 16 defilements of the mind, which are arranged in eight pairs. Sometimes they're contrasting qualities, sometimes they are related or complementary qualities. And each pair, Sariputta says, is to be abandoned, and the means of abandoning them is the Noble Eightfold Path, the Middle Way. Okay, first there is greed and hatred. This is Loba and Dosa. These are the main root defilements along with ignorance, which is the underlying most basic defilement. And then there is the middle way for the abandoning of greed and hatred, giving vision, giving knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And what is that middle way? It is just the Noble Eightfold Path, right view, right intention, and so on, through right concentration. Okay, now we come to other pairs of defilements. There is anger and revenge. It's good that I put these in Pali also. 
Okay, I don't think anger needs much explanation, <laughs> since we all know what it is. But upanaha, what's translated revenge here, it's something that could also be taken as hostility. It's not necessarily revengefulness, but it's when one is repeatedly angry at a person, and then it ki- turns into a kind of fixed feeling of enmity towards that person. So that one is always resentful towards that person, always hostile to that person. Like the person walks into the room and then you might be happy and then cheerful and this person walks into the room and it seems just like the sun has been covered by a cloud and you just feel your blood boil or your entire mood changes. That is upanaha. And you seek every opportunity to harm that person, to cut that person down. Creation of discord. Creation of discord. Discord. It's more as a psychological quality rather than the act of creating discord. What does discord mean? Discord. But discord is a situation. But this is a sort of subjective quality. Okay, makka. This is translated denigration, contempt. Translated contempt. This means denigrating others, like always wanting, feeling to a need to put others, certain other people, down in one's mind. It's a kind of quality which makes you want to speak ill of other people, particular of particular people. So if somebody praises a particular person's good qualities, you might say, don't be deceived, that person is just putting on a front, he's really a mean, wicked fellow. Or if a person shows that he has credentials, doctorate degree, whatever, then you say, that's just a phony degree, he must have bought that with his money. <laughs> so it's the quality of smearing the good name and reputation of others. Parilaha, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, no, it's Palasa, Palasa. I think Venerable Nyanamoli used domineering, but the way I find it explained in a commentary, an Abhidhamma commentary, it seems to be rather com- this kind of quality of competitiveness, the urge to be better than others the need to excel, even you call it maybe the sense of competitiveness. How does that is is here Aipa, Aipa Rom, that is competitiveness. Okay. Isa, which is envy, means resenting the success, good fortune of others when others achieve of praise, then one feels upset that others are praised. Je- well, yeah, jealousy, jealousy. When others succeed, then one feels resentment towards their success. 
Instead, the opposite of this is what quality? We have a Pali word. I heard it. Mudita, rejoicing in the success and good fortune of others. Then, Macharya, Machera, this is selfishness, stinginess, not wanting to share one's own possessions, one's good fortune with others. Maya, this is rendered deceit. This means concealing one's faults, covering up one's wrongdoing and evil so that others don't know about it. So that kind of hypocrisy so others think that one is good. Then the counterpart of that, satteya, fraud, means showing oneself election, then he channels off the benefits to his relatives and friends. <laughs> doesn't do anything for his people. <laughs> okay, so this is fraud. Next pair, tamba. This is obstinacy. The Abhidharma commentary gives us sort of the synonyms for this rigidity, lack of deference to one's elders and superiors, lack of pliancy, being unwilling to accept advice and instruction from others, being very stubborn and stubbornly. Then the next saramba uh, is rendered here presumption. How does one That means uh, without with little restraint. Little restraint. Real restraint. Saramba, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saramba is a kind of boisterous. Boisterous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of impulsiveness or impetuousness, acting on one's impulses without pausing mindfully to consider the feelings of others. And this Abhidhamma commentary gives an explanation of it which seems it gives us one meaning rivalry, but that seems very close to Palasa's competitiveness. I don't understand what the distinction would be. But I think this boisterousness, impetuousness, impulsiveness, maybe that's closer to the mind. Okay, mana is conceit. Thinking one is better, usually thinking one is better than others. But also the texts speak about the three modes of conceit. Thinking I am better, thinking I'm just as good as the next person and then there's the inferiority complex thinking I'm hopeless I'm so bad I can never succeed 
I'm just utterly confident. This is omana, thinking lowly of oneself, putting oneself in a low position. Not through true humility. It's a kind of there's a kind of pride behind that, but the pride is hurt because one has failed in one's undertaking, and so one then develops the sense of miserable, of misery. Which is a very dangerous mental state. Yeah, yeah. It's the most dangerous mental state of the three possibilities of the verse and equal. No? Yeah. Okay, then vanity or atimana. This is a kind of development out of conceit when one thinks because one is better than, one thinks one is better than others, then one looks down on others and despises them and treats them contemptuously. Atimana. But it's anyway a kind of haughtiness, thinking that one is. I think it is a. Even in the case of a saint like Mahamadalana, who was uh, very strongly affected by Abhimana because of his speed of flexibility of thinking, uh, there was definitely no looking down because he understood, but he knew it himself. Well, he couldn't have Abhimana in the country. Then there is vanity. Usually the text mentioned vanity because of when one is young, then one is vain, this kind of pride, and one loses sight of the fact that one is subject to old age. One could be vain because of one's beauty, appearance, because of one's wealth, high social status, position various types of vanity and negligence, this is pamada, this is heedlessness, um, carelessness, lack of earnestness in following the spiritual life. Okay, so those are 16 negative qualities or corruptions of the mind that have to be overcome in order to gain, to become a true heir of Dhamma. And the noble eightfold path, that is the middle way for the achievement of that goal. Okay, and that is Venerable Sariputta's analysis 
of the Buddha's teaching on errors of time. Any comments? Any questions? There is another sutta, number seven in the Majjhima Nikaya, which speaks of sixteen qualities as chief upakilesa, chief asupilesa. Corruptions of the mind, many of them are the same. I think ten of them correspond. Just loba and dosa are not on that list. Actually, loba is there too. Actually, loba is there, and also dosa is there under the name ill will. The 16 upakilesas, righteousness, uh, I'm sorry, covetousness, that's the same as loba, greed, and unrighteous greed, also the, the form of greed. Ill will, anger, revenge, intent, the stamina attitude, all the others are the same. So we could call them chitas upakilesa. I think vanity has another aspect also because you mentioned vanity in connection with beauty to a certain degree. But there is also the vanity of the holes in the ropes, no? by which one can see that uh, what comes through these holes is vanity. Not because it is such an ascetic practice and it shows its holes and its ropes is so old and old and so so one can feel the vanity coming yeah. through the holes. Yeah. So it goes even these very fine refined yeah. possibilities where one can be like fall into the pit of vanity, no? Absolutely. We all know that. Yeah, but we cannot always teach them on the way, no? Yeah, it goes together with his negligence, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a fair. Any, yes. Niramisa. And Niramisa is, you would say, spiritual. It's just the opposite of... But Niramisa comes in a different, a different context. Feelings are sometimes distinguished as being Amisa. Those we could call carnal feelings because they're concerned with the sensuality. Then Niramisa feeling, Vedana. Those are feelings that arise in the jhanas, yeah, or spiritual feelings. Um, sometimes amisa sukha, that's carnal happiness, happiness connected with sensual enjoyment. That is contrasted with niramisa sukha, that's non-carnal happiness or spiritual happiness. We could say one who is Dhammadayada, he is going after the Niramisa, non-carnal happiness, not Amisa Sutta. In Kudvatan Armstrong, yeah. Yeah, they always have to accept whatever that is offered to him, and yeah, maybe possibly have to do with it. 
some tail food is being offered and I think ideally one should accept whatever is given but sometimes there are monks who are vegetarian and so if they see that somebody is putting some meat or fish into the bowl then they can eat the food but there is a beautiful story about uh, the finger in the asphalt and it's from Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you see, uh, I think Mohan said every single Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> My experience was those days, I mean, 60 years ago, in the past. And there are non-Buddhists, children, Muslim children also. They come and give you 10 cents in the middle of the rice. Uh, and you, you take it and smile, you know, because whatever is given is given from the heart, so it, it, it has to be received with a lot of uh, joy. Of course, in the Pita Pata there are three, three, uh, first class, second class, third class, according to the Buddha Bosa, no? that you don't take any food, you come from behind, no? you're waiting from the uh, house, from certain wives and they don't come, and then they come from behind. So you don't accept it anymore than all those things, but uh, I would not practice such a thing. And then of course the bit of matter that you are going every day to some marriage, so that is the finest. Yeah, yeah. So you have no, you are free, no? Sometimes I think it would be nice that we also have this, this tradition as the Thai people that some of our uh, young uh, people would take to their robes for a three, four months or some years and then pick up other. I think it would be a good to contact with the population and give them a certain idea. Yeah, I think one of the big sort of lapses in Sri Lankan Buddhism is the decline, almost disappearance of the practice of yeah. the practice. But all the monks who have gone with the path, all the local monks who have gone with the path, they praise it, they keep it in their mind as their most beautiful experiences in their life. Later on, that is eaten up by so many social services, service and uh, that takes a lot of time. Okay, I think maybe we should stop. <coughs> maybe we should stop now for the evening. Then next week, we take the sutta number five, Ananganas. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.